Come thou long-expected Jesus. Silence. 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 God is preparing you for Christmas. If you have a Bible with you, you may want to turn it to the book of Luke. We're walking through the book of Luke. And one of the things that we have found out is we've walked through this during the Advent season, and it is a time of preparation, and God is preparing us for Christmas. But as we walk through this time, one of the things that we come to realize is that when we open up the book of Luke, we are confronted with the fact that there has been a God who has invaded the history of mankind after 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence with no new word from God. We need to realize that at that particular time there were the prophets. The prophets who spoke the words of God. And the people of Israel were, were amazed at that. And they looked forward to that. But now it has come a time for 400 years there has been no new word from God. It's difficult for us to realize what it's like to have 400 years of silence from God. You and I are very privileged in that we can lift this word from time to time whenever we want to and allow God to speak directly to us. You see, when we walk with this word, when we allow it to speak to us, it is something that actually touches the very inner being of our life if we allow it. If we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us, we allow him to speak to us, and yet it's difficult to realize that there were people who had not that privilege. What is it like for God to be silent for 400 years? I think it makes us aware that God's timing is not always our timing. That God's will is not always coincide with our will. That God's ways are not our, always our ways. And when there is that silence from God, it is for time for us to realize that. But God breaks his silence. And the way that he does it with his mighty angel Gabriel, who speaks directly to this priest by the name of Zechariah. That's exactly what we're looking at this morning, Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 57. That there it is when Gabriel spoke to Zechariah in the holy place. Listen just for a moment to his words as he spoke to Zechariah. You are to give his name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. Hey, dads, just for a minute, what would it be like for God to speak to you and say, your son, will re many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will bring many people of Israel back to the Lord. 
He will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah, the greatest prophet. One of the prophets who spoke words, many miracles. Remember that Malachi, the prophet, had spoken a very mysterious phrase in that last sentence in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, before he ever spoke to Zechariah. And these were the words that Malachi spoke. See, I send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so ends the Old Testament. 400 years of silence, and now John the baptizer comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, just as the prophet Malachi had prophesied. And that brings us to our text this morning. And it's a long text, but Eddie told me I was supposed to read the whole thing. So if you don't like it, take it up with Eddie. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. When we think about a horn of salvation, that's not a word that we usually use. The horn in the Old Testament, in the words of the Bible, that meant power. So what we're talking about is a powerful Savior. He has raised up a powerful Savior in the house of the servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from abode, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Isn't it wonderful that we can assemble here this morning without fear? And that we can recognize the holiness and the righteousness of him who makes us holy and righteous. And you, child, now at this particular point, Zechariah turns away from Jesus and he begins to talk about his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to repair his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, sunrise being Jesus, bringing light unto the world to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness into the day of his public appearance to Israel. And he was in the desert, the wilderness, until his public display to the people of Israel. It's amazing what we realize that the birth and the naming of John is a very important factor in understanding the purpose and plan of God 
when it comes to his Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, John the baptizer was the one who would go before him, and as he went before him, there had to be a reason for this name, John. Oh, Skip, what are you talking about? I don't understand. You mean that name was special? Yes, it was. Of all the four Gospels, Luke is the only one that opens our eyes to the naming of John. And he does it in such a powerful way. It even involves a family feud. Anybody here know what a family feud is? Traditionally, a baby boy would be named after his father. Or someone else in the family. Some relative. And yet at the same time, the relatives and the neighbors who have gathered around at the birth of John, they are shocked when Elizabeth says, his name is John. Why, you, we, we don't have any people, you don't have any people that are relatives that are named John. And then Zechariah spoke. Oh no, he didn't speak. He wrote it on a ta tablet. By the way, that's the first iPad. <laughs> His name is John. And that settled it. There was no other discussion. And the reason they named him John is because God says his name is going to be John. And the name of John was distinctly different from any of the family name. He would not be following in his father's footsteps God wanted to make that point clear. God was indicating that there was a specific purpose for John that did not include the traditions of the priesthood. Zechariah was a priest, but John would be a prophet going before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Not just any prophet, but a prophet of the Most High God who would prepare the way of the Messiah. And John would live in solitude, silence, removed from the typical Israelite life, away from the culture and the religious traditions of the day. You see, the Pharisees and scribes had so messed up the Jewish system that it had become laborious to the people. And God didn't want John to be anywhere a part of that. And so he sent him into the wilderness. Now, when did he go to the wilderness? Did he go to the wilderness when he was 12 years old? That's when a Jewish boy became a man. Did he go to the wilderness when he was 15 or 16? I do not know. But the Bible says that he went to the wilderness until he was publicly displayed before the people of Israel. One doesn't have to imagine much to believe that John's time in the desert was a time of silence. God was silent for 400 years. Zechariah was silenced for nine months because of his unbelief. John would be living in the desert in silence. Silence seems to be a theme here, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not the only one that thinks that, right? 
It seems that there's a God-directed miracle here. That silence is something that we need to realize that it's the theme of this God-directed miracle of this birth of this man who will later be called John the Baptizer. Silence. What do you think about silence? How many of you were uncomfortable when he stood here for 30 to 40 seconds and didn't say anything? Was he trying to collect his thoughts? Did he forget what he was going to say? Maybe he's praying. You see, we're not comfortable with silence. Silence sometimes beats us on the back of the head. Now, silence is good for a while, I have to admit. When I'm on a trail, silence is good. Silence is good when I looked at a snow-capped peak. Wish that would happen pretty quick, right? Silence when we watch the sunrise. I've taken some beautiful pictures of silence. And by the way, if you're on Jeff Tyler's Facebook, he's done some pretty good work on that too. Silence when you look at the sunrise. Silence as a young mother takes a bubble bath without hearing, Mom! Mom! But in, rea in reality, we don't like silence. Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed about a struggle in your life and as best as you know, God is silent? I think most of us, of us have experienced that. And there's moments in our life it seems like that we never get an answer from God. But for God to be silent for 400 years, what a, what's that about? Why did God do that? Generation after generation went by and no fresh word from God. But just for a moment, would you think with me as we consider the silence from God's perspective? Not from our perspective, but from God's perspective. God was silent from a human perspective, but what was he doing behind the scenes? The Apostle Paul wrote these words. And by the way, I just got a, a Christmas card this last week with these words on it from Galatians chapter 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time had fully come. When the appointed time had come, that's when our Savior came. God acted at an appointed time when everything was ready and prepared, and God was silently preparing the world for the coming of the Savior, preparing the world for Christmas. Let me explain. From 356 to 323 B.C., God brought to power a man by the name of Alexander the Great. And he took his army all through the Mediterranean region. And as he did, he built cities and libraries. And in these, for the express purpose of allowing the Greek language 
and the Greek culture to be the number one power of the earth. And as he did that, he did it in such a way that that influence led to the, to the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, which scholars call that the Septuagint. And therefore, those Gentile people, those people who were non-Jewish people, could understand the Old Testament. They had never understood it before. And then, the Gospels were written in Greek. And not only the Gospels, but those letters that were written by Paul and James and Peter and Jude, all were written in Greek. And therefore, the Greek language was the, the language of the day. And then, besides all of that, we realize that these Gospels we read today allow us to see God speaking afresh to our lives as well, even though we don't read it from the Greek. And it's preparing us for Christmas. When Rome came to power, one of the lasting legacies was that they built roads all over the Roman Empire. And that allowed the Apostle Paul in all of his missionary journeys to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those who wanted to hear the good news. And all of this was because of those individuals who were building behind the scenes because of God allowing all of this to take place. To the Jewish nation, it looked like God had abandoned them. But we can see from our perspective that he was very much at work within the world and he was preparing the world for Christmas. Let me hurry back to Zechariah's silence that ended with him writing his name is John. I begin with verse 67. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he's raised up a horn or a power of Savior, of salvation, which is a powerful Savior. How wonderful it is to know that we have that powerful Savior. And it's not until verse 76 that Zechariah ever speaks about his own son. But rather he calls each one of us to remember the reason we're here today. And only the son John was the voice crying in the wilderness. It's a beautiful song that Zechariah sang. This was really the second song of Christmas. And what do we take away from this powerful song of Christmas? We take away the forgiveness of sins, redemption, being able to be delivered from the power of sin and death and the grave. God is not preparing us for the holiday of Christmas, but rather God is preparing us for the reality of Christmas. Let me remind you of a story that I've told you before as I've stood, stood before you in times past. It's about the little boy who wanted to go to the circus. Do you remember that story? 
He had never seen the circus. He was about 12 years old. He went to his dad and he said, Dad, I want to go to the circus. There's a circus in town. And the dad said, I'm broke. I don't think I can get you to go to the circus. He said, Dad, please let me go to the circus. This is in the 1800s. So he said, I tell you what, you do your chores on Saturday morning, now I'll let you go to the circus. So Saturday morning came, he did all of his chores. He was ready to go to the circus. His dad came and reached down into his coveralls and pulled out a dollar bill, the most money that this little 12-year-old boy had ever seen in his life. He put it in his pocket, he got on his pony and he rode to the little town not far from the farmhouse. He tied his little pony up to the hitching post and he watched the circus parade. He saw the lions and the tigers in their cages. He saw the elephants walking single file, tail to trunk, tail to trunk, tail to trunk. He saw the acrobats on their unicycles. He saw the clowns as they walked down the street in their big shoes, their funny faces. And he walked up to the little, one of the clowns as the parade went off in the distance and he handed the, the clown his dollar bill thinking that he had seen the circus. You see, he had seen the makings of a circus, but he had not gone to the big top to watch the trapeze artists leap from one trapeze to the other. He'd seen the lions and the tigers in the cages, but he had not seen them at the crack of the ringmaster's whip in the middle of the, of the circus parade. He had seen all the makings of a circus, but he had not seen the circus itself. How many of us will walk through Christmas seeing the makings of Christmas but not the reality of Christmas? The reality of Christmas is not the big meal, it's not the family, even though that's very important, but what is the meaning of Christmas. When you find yourself dealing with silence, I hope that you find peace in your silence, that God will redeem that silence for you. This Christmas, in spite of all the silence, sing a song of faith. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.